If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You're listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Yeah, man. You know, just for the audience, there's no reason why my name comes first over your name. <laughs> oh, I, um, no, I was just being polite. Uh, <laughs> I know. And just, courteous. You know, in case there was any concern about, you know, racism or something. Oh, well, you know, it's weird because, yeah, like, if I say Darnell... No, it's it's um, courteous like, to say the other person's name first. Yeah, 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 because yeah, because like it sounds weird if I say um, my name first and then Joel, because I I don't want it to make it sound like okay, this is Darnell's show, and uh, you know Joel's the sidekick or something. Yeah, well, and it's it's the same thing for me, right? I do the I do the uh, the the upload or the audio, right? On or the 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 publishing, and I always write Joel and Darn or uh, Darnell and Joel, right? For the same reason. Right. So I'm just being silly. No, no, no. Well, I mean, um, I'm sure people are kind of saying, oh, yeah, why is why does Darnell say it like that? But yeah, no, 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 uh, no, no, no racism here on the show. Joel's not a racist. And yeah, if you can't tell by our little banter and the title of the show, we're talking about our good old boy Ford. Um, and so a couple months back, uh, Ford. Um, our premier uh, made a statement that we don't uh, we don't have systemic racism. We don't have that issue here. He's like, oh, I think uh, you know, I thank God that we don't have that issue here in Canada in regards to the whole George Floyd Ahmad Arbery situation with the unrest going on in the U.S. And he made that statement. And of course, <laughs> you you know, man, this, is, this is why this is why PR people get paid the big bucks, man. This is why. So when he made that comment, um, of course, you know, everybody jumped on him. And of course, he, he later later took it back. And and so now, um, you know, he's saying, OK, no, we do have this issue. And so um, he he made a statement in the House of Commons. Uh, let me see here. Yeah, so he, he made a, a statement in the House of Commons and um, he's acknowledging that I know it exists and um, and he's uh, denouncing systemic racism. And um, of course, uh, you know, reading from a document that his PR person probably put together for him and, you know, showing that he empathizes with uh, racialized communities, visible minorities, and, and we're looking to stomp it out saying all, all the right things. Uh, Mr. Speaker, and to the leader of the opposition, of course there's systemic racism in Ontario. There's systemic racism across this country. Order. I know I know it exists, Mr. Speaker. What I don't know is Order. the hardships faced by those communities. And a lot of us in this chamber do not know the hardships within those communities, Mr. Speaker. I don't have those lived experience. Order. I do not have those lived experiences, and I can empathize with them. But again, Mr. Speaker, a lot of us have never lived that. We've never walked a mile in someone's shoes. That has faced racism. 
And not only just in the black community, a lot of minority communities throughout the history of Ontario and Canada have faced racism. And our government Order. won't stand for it. I won't stand for it as Premier. And we will do everything we can in our powers and Response. work collectively with other parties to stamp this out. Yeah, so just uh, for, for timeline, it was June 2nd, and it was part of his, you know, Ontario updates. He had said something like, the we Canada doesn't have the systemic deep roots of racism as the U.S. And if I'm trying to be courteous to him in terms of what he was, he was, I think he was trying to refer to the slavery aspect uh, that, that, let's say, the U.S., um, had a greater issue with. Um, and I only say that because Canada came into existence, I believe, after emancipation. So, you know, Canada didn't even exist pre. Um, now, obviously, people would say, again, I'm not saying that I agree with him or disagree. I'm just saying if I'm trying to be gracious to what he was communicating originally, I think that was the intention. So that was on June 2nd. A day later was the House of Commons, June 3rd, when he says, I. I know there's systemic racism in Ontario. Now, mind you, we we discussed the issue of systemic racism in the past. Um, more recently with, I think it was episode 80 with Joe Boot. Was mm -hmm. it episode 80? 79. 79. It's so funny. You've called it 80 a couple of times now. Pardon? <laughs> you, you've, you've referred to that episode as episode 80 a couple of times. Yeah, well, I, I guess uh. I, 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 I wanted it to be 80. But anyways, uh, so it's called the Institutes. That one was called the Institutes. And then um, looking at, uh, you know, biblical answers to systemic racism, looking at sphere sovereignty, the institutes that God has created and how they overlap and how they um, should stay separate in certain aspects. So that's definitely an episode you should go check out. So just going forward into the show, uh, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about systemic racism again but also we're going to talk about um the ethnic hierarchy that we have in canada that's clearly there there's there's a lot of information uh, out there on the errors in, in canada's past and and we can uh clearly acknowledge that um and now we're looking at the errors that we have today so we're going to unpack that so i'm going to give you a definition from the leading thinkers uh leading commentary on systemic racism, those who are social justicians, and not not to be uh, not not to be uh, use it as a pejorative term, but just uh, people that are are pro uh, social justice. And so one of the uh, one of the people, her name is Trisha Rose, and she, her work is familiar. Her work um, is familiar because when you see the memes that are going viral those video memes of kevin and jamal and um the housing market you know housing leading to education leading to jail leading to media leading to wealth um that's her work and so she defines uh the issue as a st structural racism is the normalization and legitimization of an array of dynamics historical historically so you see it historically culturally um institutional and interpersonal so they routinely ad give advantages to whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color okay and now the next person is robin d'angelo and um she she wrote the book white fragility 
which is also a bestseller. Um, and, and she says this, all systems of oppression are highly adaptive. They can adopt, adapt to challenges and incorporate them. They can allow for exceptions. And then lastly, we have Abraham X. Kendi, uh, who is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, which as of right now is the number one best-selling book in the country. And he says this, and I, and I, and I agree with him to um, a certain extent. So he says this, racist policies have been described by other terms, institutional racism, structural racism, and systemic racism, for instance. But those are vaguer terms that racist policy, sorry, but those are vaguer terms than racist policy. When I use them, I find myself having to immediately explain what they mean. Racist policy is more tangible and exacting and more likely to be immediately understood by people. Racist policy says exactly what the problem is and where the problem is. Institutional racism and structural racism and systemic racism are redundant, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's a fair Um Now fair there's points statement. where... Um, I agree and I disagree. So, so I want to make sure that we're clear when we go for, forward for me personally. So I do agree with uh, Kendi that the term uh, racist policy is better than um, systemic racism, structural racism, and so forth. Um, but I, I disagree with him in the aspect that um, the, reason why, the reason why you would know that a, race, a, a policy is racist is because of um, the inequity or racial disparity that it creates. So that's where I, I would differ um, with him. And I would just simply say that um, all, I would say that all policy uh, creates racial disparity uh, indirectly and directly, right? So for example, you know, one thing at a time. So I would define race as a general term to describe people that look alike. Race says nothing about the people um, in and of themselves. But when you add the suffix, uh, not the prefix, but the suffix to the end of the word race, the ISM, the suffix, um, it makes it a philosophy. So just like you would have um, humanity, you would add ISM to the end and it would be humanism, right? It, it's a philosophy when you add the ISM to it, like humanism, Calvinism, right? So racism. Um, so racism is a philosophy on race. And now um, a person that enacts their philosophy is a racist. So a racist is a person who lives out their philosophy on race, whether good or bad, right? And this is why I argue uh, that racism is an amoral term. Um, meaning that it's not immoral or it's neither moral. It depends on the context, which requires more thinking and more analysis. Now, the second word, um, policy, I would say all policy is racist, meaning every policy impacts all races directly or indirectly. Whether a policy is for a race or against a race, it's still racist. Um, all, all I'm saying is that fight it, we're basically fighting racism with racism. We see this in the um, 1969 Official Languages Act, and uh, we see it also in the white paper 
um, which we'll talk about, um, 1969. Um, but on also, we, we see um, explicit policies that, that are against particular people, like uh, the Indian Act, uh, the Chinese head tax, uh, Africville, uh, Japanese um, internment camps, uh, 60 Scoop, Kamangda Moru, uh, Council PC 1324, aka the ban on black immigration, uh, 1911, uh, residential schools, and state execution of Louis Riel. And so I name all these things to say that I'm not going to, we're not, Joel and I are not dismissing the fact that racist policy exists. We're not dismissing it. Uh, What we're doing is analyzing it now. Um, from from a different angle and looking at some of the policies we have in our country that have uh, led to ethnic hierarchy. Um, what do you want to say, Joel? Yeah, I would just say, like, for me, I think um, uh, maybe you came to the conclusion of why racist policy is um, a better tool for analysis. Uh, maybe you came to that conclusion a little bit differently than me. Um, I would say the reason I think that actually works is, is it's more precise. Um, but I also think the way systemic, the term systemic racism is used, it is used beyond, let's call it the strict definitions of those two words. So systemic meaning uh, pervasive. So if I use my body, you know, an injury to my toe is not pervasive. Um, and so it wouldn't be a systemic problem in my body. Um but if there's something that affects all, you know, my blood flow, that's a systemic issue because it's going to affect all of my body. And so the, you know, applying, putting the word racism on the back end of that uh, term, so systemic racism or racism, um, you know, without getting too um, nerdy, just basically reading the Webster Dictionary definition, a belief that a race is primarily determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. And so um, I think the way you were referring to racism, it doesn't have that last part, the inherent superiority component. But I think if you if that is your philosophy on race, then everything you said uh, de- definitely makes a lot of sense um, with regards to racism, racist. Um, so the reason I say, okay, systemic racism, um, I think policy is the way to identify if we have a case of systemic racism. Now, I would say one of the dilemmas in this conversation that that you know makes things difficult is... The consequence of a racial policy is unequal outcome by race, but you can also have unequal outcome by race without a racial racist policy. In fact, unequal outcome is what we expect, right? Because we have free will. We have the freedom to choose. Um, I have the freedom to, you know, go work at McDonald's for my whole life. Or I could try to work at McDonald's and actually try to work my way up, become the manager. But if I don't want to be the manager, there's going to be a disparity there based on choices. Now, the so my point to bring that up is to say that disparities or inequalities don't inherently tell us the cause. But we know if there is a racist policy, 
it will produce a disparity. Um, and so I think, you know, coming back to why I think racist policy is such a good term is because it allows us to drill down and sort of look at um, what's going on and evaluate uh, the policy or the, the particular scenario uh, to determine, and so you know, we're going to look effects. at a video by journalist J.J. McCulloch. Uh, he writes for the Washington Post, but he is a Canadian and he's a YouTuber and he's pretty smart and um, he knows a lot about Canada and we're Canadian. So I thought his insights were pretty good. So he did a video called Pierre Trudeau and the six classes of Canadian citizen. And I'll, I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Yeah. And so and so basically he he gives uh, he basically shows a list that. Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father, warned Brian Mulroney. Uh, so back in the 90s, uh, Brian Mulroney, who was uh, prime minister at the time, he basically wanted to uh, change the constitution and add um, a special uh, treatment of uh, particular groups. And he wanted to add that to the constitution. And so there was a referendum. And Pierre came out of retirement and and made a statement basically telling the rest of the country and Mulroney that it's not a good idea to uh, create these special privileges for these, for these particular groups of people um, because it's going to, um, yeah, because there's already uh, in a sense, I, the correct term I'm going to use is, is hierarchy of Canadian citizens. And so you have to be weary of um, making the situation more messy and so these were the the special classes that Trudeau warned against. So we're going to go through the six. So just to just before before you uh, go into it, what what to the very uh, I thought it was such a, a a simple statement, right? So the the warning for Brian Mulroney was not to sacrifice yes yes that's right. individual rights for collective rights, right? This was a very uh, classical liberal perspective. Um, that the individual rights yeah, were, were of utmost priority or of utmost concern, um, and and so uh, it's I think it's actually a really pervasive component to our uh, this this conversation. So um, sort of recognizing these six classes that we're going to lay out is an aspect of collective rights, and really the last one being everyone else. Are their individual rights will be trumped in one way or another by the collectives that are listed prior to to everybody else? Right. Yeah. So these these were amendments that Brian Mulroney was trying to make to the Constitution. Uh, this was called the Charlottetown Accord. Eventually, it was um, it didn't go through and it was voted down um, at the national referendum. So the six groups were, and this is starting from the top. So the first uh, ethnic group uh, class that's at the top um, of Canadian culture as society is the French Canadians of Quebec. Second is the indigenous Canadians. Third is the bilingual Canadians. Fourth is uh, racial ethnic minorities and five rights-based provinces and then everyone else. Oh, rights-based, yeah, rights-based provinces and then everyone else. So at the top, um, what is like, that kind of threw me off because I was kind of like, oh, the French Canadians. And I guess, yeah, well, I probably fell asleep during that class. 
<laughs> Canadian history. It was just, which is kind of crazy now because I'm studying it and it's really cool. But basically, the issue with with the French Canadians, um, also known as the Francophones, uh, people that only speak French. And so what happened was, numbers wise, the English out outnumbered the Anglophones, outnumbered the Francophones, the French speakers. And so uh, there was a lot of inequality and inequity uh, between uh, the French and the English. So, so much so that like the English dominated uh, the economy, even in Quebec. And so the, and the issue was mainly the language. So majority of the people spoke English. And so it was hard for people who spoke French to, to get a job and to move up in the culture. And so, you know, Quebecers were kind of saying, okay, yo, like maybe we should separate, separate, um, and become our own country. And so this was called, um, the silent uprising, but basically they, they wanted to pull away from the, from, from the country. And in order to appease them, the official language act was put in place in 1969 to make Canada a bilingual country. So the, it was called the B&B or the by and by commission because the argument was that Canada is a bilingual country and also a bicultural country. So basically once that happened in 1969 and we in French, the French language is accessible, not just in government, but also throughout the country. That's why, you know, you can um, be taught, French as a regular part of school, um, as part of the curriculum at, at a public school. So because of that, French people were are basically at the top of the food chain and they've always been, Canada has always uh, gone out of our way to accommodate them. Now, of course, there's there's pros and cons to that. Um, do you want to touch that, Joel? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think it's a, a great example of so in within uh JJ McCullough's video he said Pierre Trudeau although he gave this warning to Brian Maroney he actually violated it himself and this he gave two examples one was this which was essentially the 1969 um bilingual I'll call it the bilingual act for simplicity oh sorry the term was quiet revolution but go ahead yeah yeah and then um what the other part was uh, that he referenced was that in the charters of Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, he uh, specific Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, put in the uh, indigenous rights. So he actually created two collective rights himself, and and even though he was warning against this, so um, you know, there's this it's kind of ironic. He's warning against doing this thing, but he's already done it himself. Um, and, and I get, you could argue he's sort of saying, okay, don't do this any further. We've already sort of done it. There's going to be, you know, further problems. Um, maybe that's the, let's say the gracious way to interpret it. Or if I want to be maybe less gracious, you could say he was ignorant of how he did it previously, but still sort of valued individual rights. Um, even though he made exceptions without realizing his hypocrisy. So again, I'm not sort of taking one stand or the other, um, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting that he's warning against collective rights, but he's still doing it himself. Yeah. And, and so the issue was with the Charlottetown Accord, they were trying to make the, the Canada clause would declare the French speakers uh, a distinct society. Uh, French speaking majority, uh, or the the French speakers would would be seen as a unique culture and um, setting them aside. So, 
yeah so so that that's what kind of set um uh set the stage and, and got the ball rolling for the next group which is the indigenous canadians which is at number two now of course the argument is well no the indigenous should have been first right um and again um you know we don't we don't want to presentize the past <laughs> right um it is it, it it is it is what it is um i i agree i was like yeah like if they were there first why aren't they being accommodated why aren't their languages being accommodated um but of course yeah above, above the, the french. french but um you know politics as usual right so so we see uh in 1969 which was the same year of the um official languages act in 1969 we have the white paper and so what the white paper was was trudeau's attempt to um affirm the idea of individual rights so up to this point even up to now well at that point uh, the indigenous community was not doing well statistically right um they were behind in everything um from whether it was the graduation rate um the alcoholism the the community was not flourishing despite the um the policies that were put in place so then trudeau tries to do something different and this is very important so the white paper is basically saying, okay, look, what we're doing is not working, right? The um, reserves stuff is not working. And he was arguing to say, okay, look, let's scrap everything and bring you guys into the, um, into the fold, into the majority and uh, treat you guys like everybody else. And yeah, the indigenous leaders said no. Uh, and part of that reason why they said no was because you know, in an in indigenous culture, they don't see themselves as individuals. That's not part of the way they, they see themselves. They see themselves as a collective, as a community, and they want to be treated as such. They don't want to be uh, assimilated into our um, Western way of thinking in terms of the individual. They rather be the collective, and they refused the 1969 white paper. But there is the Aboriginal rights and the Charter of Rights. They did um, put that in, like Joel mentioned. Yeah, and, and um, you know, there's a, an interesting point here. Uh, so, and this, JJ, I stole, I'm stealing this from JJ McCullough, but he had basically said in his video that, you know, collective rights makes government more powerful. And, and in this case, you know, there's an aspect where the Indigenous leaders are going to say no because it would actually remove their power because technically they... Sorry, who power? Which, which power? The, the the individual, let's say, tribes. The... the Collective. But, but each tribe is a collective now that has its own leader and that leader speaks for the people. There's a... If, if they were brought in, now that leader would sort of lose some of its power unless it was voluntarily given back to them, right? And and so JJ McCullough makes the example of the Wetsu uh, with regards to the pipeline, and he what he had said, and I'm totally stealing this from him. So if someone tells me I'm wrong, I'll be kind of surprised because he's a pretty reliable resource. But some of the indigenous people wanted the pipeline to be built because it would create opportunity for them. It would create jobs for them, but the 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 leaders of the tribe of of Wetsu said no. 
So there was a difference between the individual's wants and the collective want that was essentially sort of the government of those tri- of, of the Wetsu tribe um, or the Wetsu people. Um, sorry if I'm using the wrong term. Anyways, the idea though is that collective rights makes government more powerful. And that's the line I'm stealing from, from him. But, um, and he gave the Wetsu example, but I think it applies here too because I would say you know, and not that this is a feasible option, but we say the indigenous people rejected it, but really what we're saying is the indigenous leaders rejected it because they spoke for the people, but we don't, it's not like they had a collective vote and we know that that's what the individuals wanted. And I only say that just as a bit of, you know, we don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying they would have done it differently. They might've done it the same way. They might've viewed it the same way. Um, But I would, I would sort of challenge or, or I guess I have a sort of a thought or a question that don't the Amish communities sort of live in a similar manner that where they have this collective group component similar to the indigenous tribe or, or collective. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know that they're the same, but I just think of the way the communities exist seem very similar. They're they're isolated, they're on their own, they're autonomous, they function as, you know, individuals, but they have function as a collective as well. Um, and so the question I have would be, could they not have maintained it, what they wanted, while accepting being brought into the fold? Meaning, they maintained their culture, they maintained their, their way of living, but... Um, the manner in which they are given, you know, land and funds uh, becomes more individualistic and, and they have to come together as a collective as opposed to, I would say, the current way sort of forces them into being a collective. Okay. And then uh, the next on the list would be uh, the bilingual Canadians, right? So the bilingual Canadians, of course, are those who speak both languages. Okay. And then next on the list, and I guess maybe we could kind of talk about the difference between three and four, uh, we have racial ethnic minorities. Yeah, so we have the bilingual Canadians and then racial ethnic minorities at number four, which is, you know, fascinating given the present climate today. (laughs) You're looking at this, you're like, what? Wait, number four on the list, Um, right? Like, uh, you know, kind of like that whole term of uh, oppression Olympics. Yeah, you know, black people didn't even place. <laughs> they, didn't even, they didn't even place looking at this list. Right, so... You got a participation medal. <laughs> right, participation. Uh, fourth, you know, bronze. I know we're making a joke out of it, but... Canada Fitness. I don't Canada Fitness, man. So, I mean, it's it's... You know, I think for the next, you know, I don't know. what What is your thought on even the, the, you know, what, what makes the racial ethnic minorities, uh, uh another class? Uh, oh yeah. You know what I think it is? I think it's, um, like ESL. I think it's, I think it's an ESL issue as well. Not just of course the skin color, but English as a second language, um, for those people who come to the country. Um, and, and again, this isn't, again, it's, yeah, again, this isn't just, two. you know, this isn't just black people. I'm just, you know, because I'm a black person, so I automatically see everything in terms from my own perspective. But I'm sure it has to do with, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese, Indian, and so forth. Um, with 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 uh, English not being, um, might not being your first language. Of course, black people speak English. I know, but um, but the other factors, even just uh, skin color, um, could could be a factor. But 
again, this this hierarchy has to do with um, the privileges that have already been put in place um, because of uh, previous um, previous uh, policies, right? So, policies. like like we saw in um, sixty nine, but then in seventy, so sixty nine, we're talking. They're talking about bicultural. Um, by two years later, seventy one, they're talking about. Uh, multiculturalism as opposed to biculturalism and so now this becomes an act in 1988 um which basically uh, opens up the door um for uh multiculturalism policy and and trudeau goes uh pierre uh, goes on to say that um you know yes we're a bilingual country but we're also a multicultural country and that we don't have our, a distinct culture of our own, but that we're again kind of using the term uh, melting pot. Um, we we are multicultural, so there's a lot of cultures that we accommodate, and we don't have our own culture. Yeah, we're a, a cultural mosaic. Yeah, a cultural I think mosaic. Was the term. Okay, yeah, and so whereas the U.S. would be the melting pot in that they're all sort of melting into what the the, the American yes, identity right. and, is. And we talked about this on um, the evolution of racism. Uh, we were comparing Trump and Trudeau, and and I and I and I said that the difference is that for Trump, uh, being an American, um, his main priority is America, and that this is why he uses the term, um, you know, "Make America Great Again," in the sense that you know America has a culture that makes America America, and we and and we must defend that. We must. Yeah, defend it at all costs. And and it's not unique to Trump. I'm pretty sure somebody else had the like America first slogan. Yeah. Right. There's there's right. A constantly sort of this American pride is is, you know, throughout right. their country. Not to say that there isn't a little bit of Canada pride, but for the most part it's take pride in where you came from now that you're in Canada. Like I know that sound might sound no, a little yeah, stupid. Yeah, yeah. So what I was saying was that um Trump is saying, Okay, look. We're, we're going to defend America at all costs and the values of America. But on the flip side with Trudeau, uh, Trudeau, Justin is saying the same thing as his dad said, um, that we're not, there isn't anything to defend in Canada. There isn't a culture, there isn't values to defend. We are a mosaic, so we're, we're, we're accommodating as many cultures as we can and trying to do a balancing act to accommodate everybody. Um, and, and that's the difference. Trump sees something um, that that he has to defend, and Justin doesn't see something that he has to defend. That's the difference. As, as Canadian, Canadian, as a Canadian, there isn't anything to defend, and and I think it's consistent with what how his dad spoke um, in the Multiculturalism Act of 1988. Yeah, and and that's where you get his statement where diversity is our strength, or something like that. I think he, he said that a couple times, or or not so much recently, but but back when we did that episode, I remember that that statement being. Um, both uh highly criticized as well as sort of his slogan yeah so 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 that so that's the difference that that, that we're seeing there and then um the next one is number five and that is uh provinces based on province and then no territories um is sort of so the idea being there's a little bit of a i'll say a little bit of autonomy within countries Wait, countries or provinces? Sorry, within provinces. Um, sorry, there's a little bit of autonomy within provinces or from the, the federal, whereas uh, I think the territories are are just under federal law. They don't, if I if I understand correctly, they don't really have the same... Um, and, and that's why they're territories and not provinces. So provinces 
have a have uh, their own sort of jurisdiction in a, in a much more defined manner. And the best example of this would be when you look at Quebec. Um, I think uh, when we were talking about the election, remember the there was the religious, no religious garb. Yes, terminology where they couldn't for if you were mm-hmm. a government employee, Quebec, you couldn't wear yeah. anything yeah. religious to work. That is something where it's like Quebec's. We don't. Nobody wants to harm Quebec's rights because they're their own province. And and I mean, it's sort of double dips on number one as well as sort of number five. Um, but but the idea, I think, it's just a good example where, you know, for the rest of Canada, we sort of you know. There's an aspect where people are like, well, you're you're being, you know, prejudiced. You're not allowed people to express themselves. And and but in, within Quebec, it's like, no, no, we don't care. <laughs> like, um, so if you're within a the idea here, I guess, is if you're within a province versus in a territory, there there's there are some differences. Yeah, but I think I I think you make a very good point about Quebec. And the bill that they put in place where there's no religious garments being allowed to be um, shown for people that work in government. And yeah, yeah, I remember during uh, during the election, that was a <laughs> that was a big issue. And, you know, everybody was kind of saying, OK, well, why can't we just make Quebec do what we want? Right. That, that that was the sentiment. Right. They wanted to make Quebec do what they want. But like you said, they're number one on the list. So that um, number five, um, the rights of a province protects them. Um, because yeah, like, okay, well, so what if a person wants to wear a hijab or, um, a cross around their neck or whatever the case may be, you know, to us, we're like, okay, well, the the present culture that we're in, like, that's, that's discrimination. That's, um, you know, that's not being inclusive. Um, but, but Quebec is a conservative province and, and they're going to do things the way they, the way they want to do things. Hence, hence why they got their, um, the, um, the official languages act and so forth. And and when you say conservative, you know, I'm, you're kind of referring to a particular aspect of their culture. Um, cause I, they're, they're, you know, conservative. I no, don't well, I don't mean, be... I don't mean political party wise. I mean, I, I just mean, um, they're, they're, they're not, um, as progressive as everybody else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think, you know, and then coming to the to the last one, essentially everyone else. Um, you know, and I think I think for the for the, you know, the listener, I think it's important to understand the solution is not more collective rights. <laughs> well, hold on, sorry, but before you get to that, uh, who who's everyone else? <laughs> um, I mean, essentially I mean, I would say anyone who and this is what's funny is like technically anyone who's white and doesn't speak french <laughs> okay right and and maybe and maybe it maybe doesn't fall into um some of these categories where um you know there might not be a lobby group that represents them yeah which that's why i said white and, and english speaking right so so why so technically now and and some people would say well we need to do this for redistribution purposes but I'll get to why I think that's an issue. What now we're saying is that any one of these groups of people, to some extent, when we have a collective problem that they need to solve, any individual that's not part of the collective who we're trying to solve for is going to be harmed, right? Because this goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, and you said it perfectly. Policies will create disparity, right? That is the purpose. Now, it might be to address a previous disparity, but... The policy itself will create disparities um, in terms of the dis- 
the actual outcomes of that policy. So some groups will be benefited, some groups won't, or potentially some groups would be harmed, right? So for example, the bilingual aspect to Canada, for a business that wants to operate on a federal level, they they now have to go out of their way to make sure they're bilingual, even if they have no customers that are French. Otherwise, you know, and, and so the point being is, you know, that, that there's a collective right that we've now imposed onto people, even when it's might not even be relevant to them. And that's why I say, well, technically that would be harming the business because you're making them incur costs that for the potential customer. But if, if those were their customers, they would already want to do it because they want more customers. But I mean, I'm getting into sort of the free market aspect of my thinking, but I th- hopefully the, the listener understands sort of the point I'm trying to make that, that whenever you have a policy, you don't just benefit people. There, there has to, if you're going to benefit people, it has to be at the cause of, of either hindering or harming others. And I think this six classes was something new to me that, that makes me think about it. That it just makes me think about it differently. Right. And that's where I appreciate JJ McCullough's video. Cause I think he unpacks it really, really well. I say for the listener, if, if Darnell and I haven't totally made the case for you, this 20 minute video will, will walk sort of through Pierre Trudeau's creation of this. Um, yeah. And I, sorry. And then JJ has the question. He poses the question at the end of the video and he says, okay, are, you know, the fact that, the uh, Charlottetown Accord didn't get passed uh, was a victory, but JJ argues that it's a false victory because um, today we still see the, the, as he said, are we living in Trudeau's nightmare of collective rights over individual rights? Because even though the, the Charlottetown was struck down, we're still seeing collective rights over the individual rights. So how did this happen? And how like yeah? How did this happen? And yeah, how did we get here? Yeah. So so the, to answer that question for me, it, it it's 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 what politics is, and and I I would say for the, anyone who's like okay Joel whatever you're being ridiculous I would say check out a book I've probably recommended it before I'll put it in the show notes page Frederick Bastiat the law um, I can put a link that has ebook PDF web page. Um, audio book all for free. Um, but it's, and it's a relatively short book. It's like 50 pages in a small, like, you know, pocket size book. But, but the idea behind the book is that the way that we look at justice, the way we look at law, when we allow people the power to do certain things, we create, um, so if we limited the role of government and law to, to preventing injustice from reigning, we wouldn't have this problem, right? So this problem is because we've given the power to politicians to pass policy, to pass law that will help a collective. And and I think the easiest way to comprehend that, and you might argue that some of these things or examples would be, are, are good for society. Um, but the question is, how do you draw the line in the sand between what you think is good and what someone else is good? So let me give you the example. So, um, we're going to tax everybody a penny. I'm going to cause everybody in the you know country as small a harm as possible so that they don't get upset. So that's the individual rights are being violated at a very small increment, in, incremental amount. But then I take that aggregate tax and now I help a collective so that they will vote for me. And so that is what politics is. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but in essence, you are, you know, 
pandering or, or selling yourself to your audience based on what you can do for them. And, and generally, you're trying to find the collectives, the, the right number of collectives, the right number of groups that you're going to, you know, you have this tax break for, or you have this benefit for, or, you know, it's like the childcare benefit, right? For, for parents, right? So, oh, I'm going to increase that. Okay. Well, you're trying to get the vote from that audience. So the, but we've given politicians such power that they can help the collective while harming the individual. The problem, why is that a problem? Because now all we're doing is fighting over that power. So politics is about winning the ability to do collective good at the harm, at the individual harm level. And, and now we just continue to perpetuate sort of that through every election. Now it's this guy saying, okay, I'm going to get rid of this guy's laws. And now we're going to add all my laws or all my tax breaks. And we're going to get rid of that guy's tax breaks, or, you know, we're going to help different and, and perfect example. Look at the conservatives in Ontario, right? Um, or maybe it was federally. We used to have fitness tax credits and then we had this tax credit, you know, for doing, you know, this thing and that thing. And then the when when Trudeau got in the first time, he basically scrapped all those fitness tax credits and put in his own tax credits. And so it's it's just this game of trying to help a co- groups of collectives so that you get reelected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. No, I I totally agree. Um yeah, we talked about um public choice theory and how um particular groups support politicians for them to get their way. Um, but I guess for me, the, what I'm seeing, what caused this was the, um, Royal Commission of Bilingualism and Biculturalism, which uh, was, uh, 1963. So we had to go back to see where this whole thing started. And so for sometimes for people, when they think about the beef between English and French, um, although, you know, they all look alike. All white people look alike. Hey, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> right. But the idea, like, but it's deeper than, you know, them looking alike. Cause they'll be like, okay, well, how could there be racial tension? But you have to remember like the French and the English, um, there's, there, there's a, a religious difference, right? Catholic Catholicism and, and Christianity. But then you also have, um, the political difference and allegiance to the crown and not, and um, of course, linguistically. So, so that's where the, 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 the separation happens. And we see the implications um, in the inequity um, because of the difference in culture, um, a majority versus a minority and the minorities are um, dealing with English privilege. And so when you were growing up, did you, do you remember always hearing that Quebec might be separating? Yes. Yeah. I remember that, but I, I, I didn't know what it was. Yeah, yeah, I like never that understood was, it either. I never understood it. I didn't quite get it. Now, like to be honest, this it makes me understand it more. Now, what I would argue, or what I would want the listener to, at least for me, I would say, I don't comprehend what the problem was. Like, I can't, I can't think back to the '60s and say, okay, what was Pierre Trudeau trying to solve with this bilingual? Like, what was the societal issue that he was addressing? Like, I, I mean, yeah, no, because because what he was trying to do was trying to reconcile the country and and, and create unity. Um, so, like he said, um, yeah. So, but part of my point was like, I I can't really comprehend what that means. Like, I get it, I know conceptually what it means, but I I I don't understand what the, the country was going through um, is, is more my point. So and in order to judge, was this effective? Was there an alternative? Like, I, I'm not in a place to judge that. I'd probably need to spend hours studying, you know, the history at that time to even try to evaluate, uh, was this 
even the best option, the worst option, a decent option. Um, but our conversation and, you know, it, I think demonstrates that these things have consequences for years. And consequently, he would have never expected, in essence, to have created six classes of Canadians that that you're, I think, and you're laying it out, that it was catalyst from this 1963-69 era. And so, so what we see from uh, 1963 to 1969 is the Royal Commission of Bilingualism and Biculturalism. And so, like, in, in his speech, like, um, in 1971, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau says, again, um, the policy of multiculturalism with within a bilingual framework, a policy that would complement the Official Languages Act by facilitating the integration of new Canadians into one or both of the official language communities. Although there are two official languages, there is no official culture. And so this, I would say, is a racist policy. It is a pro-racist policy um, because it's working in favor of um First, initially, it was in favor of the Francophones, um, but now it's expanded to um, other communities. And so now you have everybody falling in place, like uh, in 1969 with the white paper and other um, indigenous policies. But then if we fast forward to 1990, and we see that the anti-racism, anti-discrimination, multiculturalism um, policy. So during the 1990s, the federal multicultural, and uh, sorry, and the idea is this, um, did it work? Did the Anti-Racism, Anti-Discrimination, Multiculturalism Act work? And this was in 1990, not, not 1990, in the 1990s. So during the 1990s, the federal multiculturalism policies and programs placed greater emphasis on eliminating barriers to economic and social participation of immigrants and designated minority groups. In 1995, the federal government passed employment equity legislation that, among other things, require that information be gathered in order to determine the degree of the underrepresentation of persons in designated groups, notably the country's visible minorities. Since 1996, the census has collected information about visible minorities in Canada and multiculturalism aimed at eliminating racism and discrimination, assisting institutions to become more responsive to Canada's diversity. We're in 2020. You ask any anybody on the street about where we're at right now, and people will talk in a way like this never happened, like this policy never came into place. You say, okay, well, is it effective? Well, people say, well, did it even happen? We can't even tell that it happened. Now, the idea is, again, my point is that this is um, a policy that was done um, a racist policy that was done to uh, protect a particular race, right? Almost 30 years later, we can't even see, we can't even see the fruit of that policy. And I say all that to say that, um, you know, as much as we want to protest and lobby and get things done, sometimes we realize, wait, did it even work? Right. And so this is why it's important um, as, I, I don't want to say it as, as black people, because, you know, all black people are different and not every black person um, um, thinks the same or, or, or benefits from, from a policy the same way. Don't ask Joe Biden that. Huh? Oh, <laughs> no, but um, my, my argument was just simply that these policies get put into place and we're kind of like, okay, well, did it work? Uh, so economist Thomas Sowell 
um, says this um, in, his, in, in, in his book, um, I think, Visions of the Anointed. And he says this, do people, and you, of course, this is an American context, but I think this, this resonates more, means resonates more with Canadians than Americans. So just flip the American and put Canadian. So do people who advocate special government programs for black Blacks realize that the federal government has had special programs for American Indians, including affirmative action since the early 19th century. And, the Ameri- and that American Canadians, I'm sorry, American Indians remain one of the few groups worse off than Blacks. So what I'm saying is that, you know, for Black people who are saying, okay, well, yo, like, we need more. We want more special treatment from the government. Um what kind of special treatment do we want? Is it is it the same that the indigenous people have gotten? Or does the things you're asking for look like what they're getting? And why would you expect a different result? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And of course, you know, people will say, okay, well, well, how come, you know, black people can't get that same treatment as indigenous people? Well, again, they're a community that um, have artifacts that make them distinct. Um, the only thing that makes black people distinct is we look alike. Relative, relatively, but after that, there's there's nothing else black people have in common. Nothing else. Well, and, and I think what you're really saying is there's so much nuance. Well, there is no nuance with black people. What do you mean? There is there is no nuance. Are you a racist? I'm saying like there there's a uh, everyone is so different. Oh, okay. Sorry, I was I was getting a little excited. <laughs> I was getting a little excited. All right, Jules. So what's your two cents, um, man? So I think there's. Affirmative action policies that, uh, and I'm stealing this from Peter Schiff, and I'm sure when people hear what I'm about to say, it's going to sound absurd. But you you raise the point about you know is that Paul? Uh, what are you talking about? No, people don't even think this thing's been passed in Canada. And and the question would be, is it because th- there's there's two questions that I've raised I think on this show a few times. And were the intended consequences achieved? But secondarily, what were the unintended consequences, right? And and potentially, the problem wasn't that the intended consequences didn't occur. It's that the unintended consequences caused the intended consequences to be a net irrelevant or net effect was unnoticeable because it didn't change anything. Well, so the example Peter Schiff gives is as an employer... If I hire a person from what we would call a protected class, the cost of firing them is astronomically higher. Astronomically, I'm exaggerating. The cost of firing them is higher than firing someone who's not in a protected class. That is an unintended consequence, and I'll explain why. If I hire a straight white male and I want to fire him because they're incompetent, they don't meet the standards that I needed. They don't, they're not good at their job. They lied on their resume and I don't, th- and, or I think they lied on the resume because they seem underqualified. Whatever the reason, I have a legit, I'm firing them with cause. They don't have the ability to make a human rights claim against me. But the person who is in a protected class and I hire them, I now, when I want to fire them, I have to risk that they're going to come after me that I violated their human rights. Because I fired them based on the they they're gonna they could claim that the, I would that, that they were fired based on their protected class. So if that occurs, there's a court case I got to deal with. There's legal consequences. There's you know greater potentially hindering my business. So 
The point is you've actually increased the cost of hiring somebody in a protected class. So now as an entrepreneur, I'm actually, I have a greater reason. The, the intention of making them a protected class was so that they didn't get racially profiled and therefore, and they would be you know treated fairly. But now you've actually given them a reason for the entrepreneur to say like, I'm actually afraid that you know, I don't know this person I'm about to hire. Maybe they're just going to come after me out of malice because for revenge. Like, again, assuming I'm purely uh, motive in firing them, they could use this protected class to try to harm me for vengeance. Whereas this straight white male doesn't have that tool. So maybe the risk is only 5%. Maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's a half a percent. But it's still increasing the cost in a sense of hiring somebody in a protected class. So that's the unintended consequence. The intended consequence is for those that do, uh, you know, fire someone based on race, do take advantage of people because of their protected class status. Well, now there's a little bit extra legal umph to go after them. So that's the intended consequence is, is good, but the unintended consequence. Now people would say, well, no, 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 we can't talk about that. But, but, this is the problem when you're looking at the policy. You have to understand what are the intended consequences and what are going to be the unintended consequences. How are you shifting people's incentives? And this is where collective rights versus individual rights becomes even more of an issue because so much of collective rights focuses on the intended consequences and it ignores the unintended consequences. And a prime example that you gave was, or in Canada, look at the indigenous people. How much money do they get from the government? It's it's crazy and it is failing them miserably. So more money is, you know, there's an example where more money doesn't work. Now you could argue in this context, more money would do different. Maybe, but what are the, why is it failing there? If you don't understand why, why would it work in your scenario or the scenario you're proposing? Why wouldn't potentially the unintended consequences that are occurring in their scenario result in your scenario as well. So I think for the listener, my point is that my point is not that we don't, there aren't issues that need to be addressed, right? The point is that policy may not be the best way to address it. And we really, as a society, as a people need to stop pointing to policy as our primary or as our first stop solution, right? The first stop solution should be, how do I help my community? How do I empower my community? How do I lift up my community? And and I I mean I've said it on the show, you know, just look at charity or and taking care of the poor. For the most part, I think our society has made taking care of the poor an impersonal decision. We've said, oh, that's the government's responsibility. Therefore, I don't take personal responsibility. They tax me for that, so I don't have to worry about it. And I think that's part of the reason why um, you know, the the, the are, we have greater homeless uh, homelessness is a is a growing problem, not a depleting problem. So uh, Darnell, what's your two cents? What do you want to leave the listener with? I think the biggest fear, especially among black people, um, is systemic racism, institutional racism. Political groups play that, um, they play on that fear by making you feel more reliant on them to save you from the omnipotent, omniscient, omni-manevolent racist hiding in every institution and document. Right. So it's important to not fall for 
um, the bait and switch where it's like, okay, well, you know, this problem is so great and it's so um, divinely powerful that um, only a divinely powerful state can step in and save you and that the collective needs saving. But as opposed to the individual um, being able to fight and and, and save themselves. Um, so in regards to my definition on racist policy and going away from systemic racism, institution, institutional racism, I, again, I think those are scared terms, scare tactics. I, I prefer the term I agree with Kendi on using the term racist policies and then analyzing them and then walking through them step by step. Um, now, of course, my definition of racist policy is different than Ibrahim Kendi. Um, and maybe, you know, in the future, we'll, we'll, we, could, we should do um, a type beast on the book, How to, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and, and unpack that book further in its um, doctrine. But I'll say this, based on my definition, please, guys, if, if what I said and my definition of racist policy and defining race is wrong, let me know. I could be wrong. And, and, and I'm willing to change it because I want to, I want to present something that's helpful. I don't, like I can, I, I read, I read a lot of books and I can tell you what those books say, but I have my own opinion and this is my own opinion on the issue, but please, um, give me feedback and let me know if you disagree with my definition and I'm, and I'm not gladly go back to the drawing board if you could show me that it's not consistent. Um, but I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, the great RC Sproul said this. Everybody's a theologian. It's just a matter if you're a good one or you're a bad one, right? <laughs> I, I would say this. Everybody's a racist. Everybody's a racist. Meaning we all have our own philosophies of race that we live out. It's all a matter of if you're a good one or a bad one. So um, maybe just for the, the last, you know, go back to the original quote. What does he mean by you're a good theologian or a bad theologian um everybody's a theologian meaning meaning yeah, meaning so, so what does oh, that mean no, when you're no, a bad well, no, theologian? What, what it means is that um everybody has a thought about god everybody has commentary about god an atheist is a theologian because they have a theory about god and they comment on it that makes them a theologian uh, what makes you a good theologian is how biblical can you be can you support uh your your ideas with text and be faithful to the scriptures. That's what he meant. And then similarly now, when you look at uh, racist, what is your theology or what is your idea of race, right? I read the uh, negative or, or uh, evil definition of racism where you think one race is greater than another. Um, but the alternative, I would, you would say, I, I think you would agree, the good racist or the good racist idea would be that we're all equal under God. There is no Jew, no Greek, nor Gentile, and 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 do you live that out? Mm -hmm. Or or even um, again, but yeah, you're right, you're right. So yeah, there, there's a point where we're looking at okay, well, you know, is this is this good? Is this helpful? This idea that I have about race, or is is it harmful? Um, and it, of of course, you know that that takes more um, thought. Um, but I don't want to. The point is this: um, I don't want to. I I, I don't think it's helpful to um, the connotation of the word racist uh, to naturally mean something that is, or a person that is evil, because um, we judge people based on the color of their skin all the time, especially in the black community with shadism. We, we do it all the time. You know, black skin, you know, dark skin people are in style now. Okay, no, it was light skin, light skin, you know, light skin people are in style. 
or you know light-skinned girls are high sadity you know you can't talk to them because they're rude <laughs> i didn't even know what that word meant <laughs> what high sadity is that what you said oh 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 high sadity oh man that means stuck up <laughs> you know what i mean so, so uh, sorry high sadity. no actually no that, that that that's an old word by the way that's it's not it's not a new slang term that's that's an old word high sadity committee um <laughs> <laughs> but um with all that said guys let us know what you think let us know your two cents please give us your feedback uh, it's been very helpful uh leave a review on itunes if you're really feeling the show uh, leave us a review give us a couple thumbs up let us know what you think um are we off are we on yeah is there an aspect of of this conversation you know the, the systemic racism you know conversation that, that needs we, to be unpacked or, or yeah further. or that we didn't address Right, that you want us to address. Um, I mean, I, I know I would think that this issue is not, uh, you know, we haven't obviously covered every aspect of it, um, but I think, of course, um, this, I hope this episode is, is helpful because it does provide a very uh, uniquely Canadian component to it. And also, Joel, you know what? We also have a lot of um, American listeners. Um, and, and we haven't scared them off with the Canadian t- content, which means they're pretty interested in it. So let us know if you, um, our American listeners, let, let us know what you think. Yeah, yeah. So, six cents makes change. But you heard me? Does that make sense?